0: Now also, many of you know that Ernie Taylor's funeral was this past week, and Carolyn wrote us a really nice note to the class about providing food for the family, and we put that note on the bulletin board over there, so if you'd like to read that, it's there, okay? You can see that after class. Well, let's take our Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll finish the chapter, beginning in verse 9. And today we come to the first of four visions in the book of the Revelation. This book is made up of spiritual experiences that John has in his head. He has pictures that flash in his head. He has visions. And he writes down these visions. And this begins the first vision in verse 9 and it ends in chapter 3 and verse 22. And that's what we'll be covering for the next couple of weeks. Now, I want you to notice where this vision takes place. Look at John uh, Revelation 1 and verse 9. He says, I, John, and then look down that verse for the first verb that you see. And you'll see about right in the middle of the verse. He says, I, John, was, see that? There's your verb, was on the island that is called Patmos. So this vision that he has takes place on an island which is a... Small, craggy, rocky, mountainous uh, plot of land that's about 6 miles by 12 miles out in the Aegean Sea. And it's west of Asia Minor. And on your tables, I put a map there. And uh, every table should have about 3 or 4 maps. And you'll notice Patmos right there in the Aegean Sea. And you'll notice to its east, is Asia, or what we call today Asia Minor. And you'll see those seven churches that we're going to be reading about today, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John is on the island of Patmos and he's writing to those seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, Patmos... Served as a layover or a harbor or port where ships that were sailing from the capital of Rome, which is to the west, to Asia Minor would stop and they would spend the night. They would unload freight and cargo and pick up freight and cargo and that's where they would stop before they would land over there in Asia Minor. But Patmos was also... A penal colony where prisoners were confined to hard labor. If you were a prisoner against the state, or you had committed a serious crime, they would confine you to patents, uh, oftentimes for for the rest of your life. It's like Australia was. You realize Australia originally was a penal colony, and you were exiled to Australia. Today it's not that. But Patmos at this time was a place where prisoners were exiled and had to break up those rocks, you know, with hammers. And so this is where John's vision takes place. Now look how John identifies himself there in verse 9. He says, I, John, and then he identifies himself, first of all, as your brother. Now when you talk about being someone's brother or their sister. You're talking about being related to them in some way. Now, he's not related to them physically. But, if you belong to a fraternity, you may have fraternity brothers. And that means you have something in common. You both belong to an organization that has common goals. Well, John is a brother of these people, and the common relationship they have is Christ. They are members of Christ's church. So he identifies him first of all, self as a brother, and then, second of all, he identifies himself as a companion, or the Greek word koinonia, which means uh, a partaker or a sharer of something. And so, he sees himself as their companion, one who shares in something common. Now, what does he share in? This is what it says. John, your brother and companion, your sharer or partaker, first of all, he shares with these people in the church in Tribulation, which means affliction. So he is being afflicted. And they're being afflicted. And they're being afflicted by the Roman Empire. Uh, emperor Domitian is reigning. He's been reigning. He reigns from 81 to 96 A.D. It's about 95 right now. Right at the end of Domitian's reign. Now here's what we know about Domitian. He starts off as a pretty good emperor. He actually doled out in gold to every person who lived in the entire empire at one time. He basically said, hey, we're going to give you a rebate on your taxes. That's always good news, isn't it? And these people thought that uh, the emperor was a great man. But toward the end of his reign, he became maniacal and he became very evil. And he began to persecute the church. Not only the church, many people, but John says that I am a brother and a companion, a partaker with you, his readers, in affliction, and this is affliction that's brought upon by the Roman Empire. Now, we also know that Domitian took the title, and he expected people to address him this way, as our Lord and our God. It's very interesting, isn't it? Our Lord and our God. Now, remember Thomas, when he sees the resurrected Jesus in the Gospel of John, written by the same guy that writes this book. He falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. And so, the Christians would not acknowledge Domitian as God, and that's one of the reasons they were being persecuted, why they were being afflicted. And then look what else he says. He's your brother and companion, not only in tribulation, but also in the kingdom, In the kingdom. So on the one hand, he's being afflicted by the Roman Empire. But on the other hand, guess what? He's being blessed by the kingdom of God. And so he has a ruler who's reigning, Jesus Christ. He sits on his throne and reigns. And he is blessing and giving grace to John's brothers and companions. So... We see that on one hand, he's being afflicted by the empire, and on the other hand, he's being blessed by the kingdom of God. And all believers at this time are experiencing this. And then he says this, not only is he a companion and brother in tribulation and in the kingdom, but he also partakes, he says, of the patience or endurance of Jesus Christ. He says, you know, we're not in this alone, When uh, Jesus was alive, he too was afflicted by an emperor. He too suffered. In fact, he was put to death. But you know what? God blessed him, didn't he? And just as Jesus persevered and was blessed, so we too must persevere and be blessed. And so he says we are companions in the patience or endurance or perseverance of of Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus persevered when he was afflicted, so John and his readers must not cave in either. So, this is what's going on. Now he gives us the reason why he's on the island of Patmos and it becomes pretty obvious. He says he was on the island of Patmos in verse 9. Number one, for the word of God. The implication is that he was preaching this gospel. And he was saying, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And that got him arrested. Because that message in Bible times was a political message. Not just a spiritual message. Uh, If you would go to a country today where you have some maniacal leader and he proclaimed himself to be God, and you say to him, You're not God, Jesus is God. Guess what that gets you? On John's days, it got you on a penal colony. On the Isle of Patmos. Today it would throw you in jail if you were dealt with that. So he says that he's there because of the Word of God, and he says also in verse 9, because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. It simply means that Jesus is Lord. So the Word of God and the witness of Christ causes John to end up on the island of Patmos. He has probably been arrested for political sedition, been exiled to this island where he can no longer make an impact upon the people around him. Now I want you to notice one thing. I want you to notice the verb there in verse 9. See that verb? It was... Says was Do you see that I was on the island. He writes this after the fact. He doesn't say I am on the island when I write it or when I had the vision. He said I was on the island of Patmos when I had the vision. And now evidently John has gotten off there. the The, uh, the sentence has ended. Why would the sentence end? Well, because Domitian Domitian dies in 96 A.D., so he probably was released. Next emperor comes along and releases him. And uh, now he writes down the vision. And So what we have has been written after he gets off the island of Patmos. Does that make sense? So where is he? Geographically, he's on the island of Patmos. Now, where is he spiritually? Look what he says there in verse 10. I was in the Spirit. You see that? Look at verse 1. I was on the island of Patmos. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit. That's the second place he was. Spiritually, he was in the Spirit. What does that mean, he was in the Spirit? That means he was probably worshiping. And uh, probably his physical senses have receded. And his focus is totally on Christ. And in his worship, his consciousness has been altered, and he's not aware of all the dismal surroundings, and suddenly he's got his focus on Christ, and he says, this is where I was, in the Spirit. And when was he in the Spirit? He says, I was in the Spirit, verse 10, when? On the Lord's Day. Now, we say Sunday, and that's what it means. It means Sunday. But you need to understand what it meant in secular literature, on the Lord's Day. Rome also practiced a Lord's day. It was called Augustus' day. See, Caesar was Caesar Augustus. Augustus wasn't his name. And Caesar wasn't his name. Did you know that? Caesar, from which we get our word Kaiser, simply means king. And Augustus means August king, great king, almighty king. And The man's name was Domitian, and his brother's name was Titus, and his father's name was Vespasian. So this is his name is Domitian, but guess what his title was Augustus. And the Romans had a day called Augustus Day or the Lord's Day, where everyone honored the emperor. And guess what Christians borrowed that concept. And said, and we have a day when we honor our emperor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was Sunday, the day of the resurrection. So you see how a lot of our language flows right out of the political system of the day. And without understanding that, you miss it. It, that, it, it takes on new meaning, doesn't it? It takes on a new flavor. It becomes a fuller understanding of the text. So he says, I was in the Lord In the spirit on the Lord's day. And notice what happened. He says in verse 10. And I heard behind me. A loud voice. As of a trumpet. Suddenly he's worshipping the Lord. And he's not conscious of anything that's going on around him. And suddenly there's this big blast. And it's a voice. And he, he turns around. And he hears this loud blaring voice. Booming voice. And notice that this is a commanding voice. Look what it says. A loud voice as a trumpet. And here's what it said, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. Now that's how the voice identifies itself. I am the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. Now, if you're first, does anything come before first? And does anything come after last? So this voice identifies itself as coming from someone that is eternal. There's nothing ever existed before this voice or this Word that speaks. In the beginning was the what? Word. Remember that? The Word was with God. The Word was God. Remember how John opens up his Gospel? And Jesus is the eternal God. This is how he's identifying himself through this voice. Now, when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, that's actually a quote from Isaiah 44. And in that passage, God speaks. God speaks through Isaiah the prophet to Israel. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first (coughs) and the last. So when John hears that, he sees this as the voice of God speaking. So it's a very commanding, booming, loud voice. But it's also a commissioning voice. Look what he says right in the middle of verse 9, verse 11. And look what else he said. What you see, that's the vision, that's the vision. What you see, write in a book, literally a scroll. They didn't have books like we have today. Write in a scroll and then send that scroll, that writing, to the seven churches which are in Asia: the Ephesus, the Smyrna, the Pergamus, the Thyatira, the Sardis, the Philadelphia, the Laodicea. So he's commissioned to do something: write what he sees in a scroll and deliver it to the seven churches. Now, when you look at your map, I want you to notice how those seven churches are situated in Asia Minor. Now I want you to notice that the first church that he's going to send that scroll to is Ephesus. Do you see that? Ephesus is John's home church. John was the pastor at the church of Ephesus for a number of years. And then there is a road that goes up to Smyrna and then goes all the way around, forms sort of a, a crescent. And each one of these cities is about forty to sixty miles away from each other, and they formed the postal route in Asia Minor. So, if you wanted to send a letter, the post, the postal man, the postman, the mailman was going to deliver and He'd stop first at Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, and so on and so forth, until all of his... Letters. This would be like the Pony Express. You know, not like we have letters today. The Pony Express. And it may take, you know, a week to deliver all the letters. So this is the route. So when the letter arrives, it's first going to arrive at Ephesus, and the last place it will arrive is Laodicea. Now since what he is writing is what he sees in the vision, the vision is for all the seven churches... And while there are some individual instructions to each church, for the most part, what's in this book, this letter, Revelation, is for all the churches to listen to and learn from. So then he says in verse 12, And so then I turned, because up until that time he only heard the voice. It was behind him. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. So he first heard and then he turns to see. That means he wanted to see who was it that was speaking to him. And look what he saw. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, when he turns around, instead of seeing a person, he sees seven lampstands. Okay? Now remember, this is a vision. It's like you having a dream at night. It's, this is a lot of symbols, and these symbols have meaning. So, in verse 20, he tells you what those lampstands were. Look what he says in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven lampstands. At the end of verse 20, he says, the seven lampstands which you saw are the what? Seven churches. So, what he does is he sees seven lampstands. He wonders, what in the world are these lampstands? What does this mean? It's like having a dream. I had a dream last night. I saw seven lampstands. What in the world does that mean? So, here's Christ in red speaking to him, he says, oh, in that vision you had, the seven lampstands represent something. They represent the seven churches. What seven churches? The ones you've just seen. that makes sense? Okay, so just stay with me. Seven lampstands. Look at verse uh, 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, so he sees seven lampstands, he sees one right in the middle, like the Son of Man. Now, when you see that title, Son of Man, you immediately think of two things. Number one, that's the way Jesus identified himself. He said the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. So, number one, he see, thinks of Jesus. He sees one like the Son of Man. But that phrase, Son of Man, originally comes out of Daniel chapter 7. And in your Bibles, you'll have cross-references, and they will show you Daniel 7 and 10 and 12 and different places there. So this is a... He sees Jesus uh, as depicted in the book of Daniel standing there in the midst of the churches. So this is a picture of Christ in the middle of his churches. Okay, And so that's what he sees at this point. Now what does he look like? Look what it says in verse 13. First of all, what did he wear? He was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden fan. What he's actually saying, and for his readers they understand it, he looked like a high priest in the temple. He looked like a high priest in the temple. Uh, this is exactly how Daniel describes the Son of Man that he sees in his vision. Hundreds of years before, over in Daniel chapter 10, and verse 5. And a lot of this... Uh, description is coming straight out of Daniel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 1, okay? And Daniel chapter 7, okay? So that's what he was wearing. He was wearing the garments of a high priest. Of course, Jesus is our high priest. So, let's put it this way. There are seven churches in the middle. There's one like the Son of Man. He's dressed like the high priest. This tells us something about his role as the ascended Lord. He is our high priest who forever makes intercession. With the saints. Now let's look at what was on the top of his head. Verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool. Notice that simile there. Like wool. As white as snow. Well, when you go back to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of the Ancient of Days and he has hair white as wool and white as snow. And so he sees this, he's again giving those same. Uh, the same description as you have in, in the book of Daniel. Look at his eyes. His eyes were a flame of fire. Now what does that mean, his eyes were a flame of fire? You see fire shooting out of someone's eyes. Once I preached the book of Daniel in a church where I was pastoring, I mean the book of Revelation in a church where I was pastoring, and I said, I want everybody to take out a piece of paper and draw a picture of this guy that he sees in the middle of these churches. It's a strange picture man that had white hair, looked like snow, and a priestly robe, and fire shooting out of his eyes. Well, fire shooting out of someone's eyes is, means that he had a glare that could look right through it was a, It was a judgment. Fire often deals with judgment in the Old Testament, and I think this is a picture of what you're going to see. He's going to be judging these churches, He's going to be judging the nations as well. Uh, he had fire in his eyes. You know, what, what does that mean when you say this person had fire in his eyes? You know, maybe he's angry. I don't know, but uh, because he doesn't explain that, if he doesn't explain it. You're having to basically make some conjectures at that point. And then it says, his feet in verse 15 were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And then that's another subject of. Uh, of judgment. Brass, oftentimes time, in the Old Testament, and then Daniel deals with, with judgment. Uh, look at his voice. His voice, as the sound of many waters. His, when he spoke, he said he heard this loud voice behind him. And uh, it didn't sound like one person speaking. It sounded like the Niagara Falls. It just roared out when he spoke. And uh, it's a majestic voice. And then not only that, he says... Uh, in verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. And again in verse 20, we see what the seven stars are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So he sees this one like the Son of Man in the midst of the candlestick, flame shooting out of his eyes, and in his right hand he has seven stars. And they're just right there, these seven stars in his hand. And those seven stars represent the seven angels or messengers, the word angel uh, simply is the word messenger. Seven messengers of the seven churches. Now we don't know whether these are messengers that came to collect John's letter or whether these are people who are going to deliver the letters. Some translations, some Bibles in their footnotes say this is the pastors of the churches. All we know is that these are messengers to or from the churches. And he's holding the seven messengers, these seven stars representing the messengers, in his hands, which means that he's protecting them. They're under his control. This message has to be delivered safely to the seven churches. Cannot fall into the wrong hands. And so there's a picture of Christ holding these messengers who are going to deliver the message in his hands. He's protecting them and he's controlling them. And then in verse 16, it says, And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, we all have seen that phrase before, haven't we? We saw that in Hebrews. The Word of God is like a sharp, two-edged sword. Revelation 19, the Word of God shoots out of his mouth. And that, again, speaks of judgment, where he judges based on his Word. And we'll see that later in chapter 19. And then what did he look like? It says his countenance was like the sun shining in all of its strength. Uh, there was a brilliance, a glory uh, surrounding his body. So, this is a vision that must be interpreted. And much of the vision comes straight out of the book of Daniel. So, if you really wanted to know what all of this means, you really need to go back to Daniel. And normally that's what I would do. But because we have to be out of here at a certain time, we won't do that. But you can go there and look, you know, in this afternoon. So, he hears something, he sees something, and then I want you to notice he does something. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, look what he did. I fell at his feet as a dead man. Uh, This is the same reaction Daniel had when he saw the son of man. He fell at his feet in the This is what Ezekiel does. He falls at his feet. This is what Paul does. Uh, This is what we call a theophany. This is an appearance of God in human form and all that the writer can do. He says, when it happened, all I could do was just fall at his feet and I could worship him. And then verse 17 says, and he laid his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. I... And the first and the last. Now, notice one hand he laid on him. Which one was it? Same one that had those messengers, wasn't it? The stars. So, what he does is he takes that hand, and this is all in his vision. All in his vision. Did he literally fall down? We don't know, but in his vision he fell down. Okay? In his vision he falls down. And with that same hand that was comforting the messengers and protecting the messengers, he puts his hand on John's shoulder in the vision. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Basically, I'm going to take care of you. So this is a touch of comfort. He said, I'm the first and the last. Look what else he says in verse 18. I am he who lives. Right now he's alive. And was dead. See, now we have the picture that the Son of Man is none other than Jesus Christ, who right now lives, but was crucified. And behold, I am alive forevermore. In other words, and I will never die again. So here's a picture of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. They put him in a grave. Put like this, said, we got rid of that guy. And three days later, God raised his body from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at God's right hand from which he reigns. And you know what the Apostles' Creed says? Suffered under Pontius Paul, crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into heaven. All right sits at the right hand of God the Father almighty from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead remember that and so here he is he's all he's been raised he sits at God's right hand and he's waiting to come and judge now who's he going to judge first of all he's going to judge the roman empire he's going to judge the emperors and he's going to judge this Government that has been cruel to the, and oppressing uh, to the poor people, and oppressed people, and held people down. And then he's going to judge those in the church who've gone along with the government. Who said, my country right or wrong? My country right or wrong? Hey, you should never say your country right or wrong. Many times your country is wrong, guess what you have to do? You have to stand against it, just like Germans had to stand against Hitler. Just like people have to stand against any country that goes off track. And when a country goes off track, you need to stay right on line. You need to persevere like Jesus did. That's what he said. We're companions in the perseverance and the patience of Christ. We stay right on the mark. And so he will come and he'll judge those churches and individuals in the churches that have, instead of giving their allegiance fully to Christ, Chosen instead to give their allegiance to Caesar and Christ. And to give your allegiance to Caesar instead of Christ is not giving your allegiance to Christ at all. So then he says at the end of verse 18 he says amen, he says that's true and then he says I have the keys to Hades and death which means the grave and death. But what does that mean, he has the keys to grave death? It means they put him in a grave, and guess what? He walked out of there. He had the keys. He didn't stay in the grave, and he didn't stay dead. And guess what? He has the keys that if you would die, that we just had somebody die in our class who's given their allegiance to Christ. But guess what? They're not stuck there forever. Death has no hold over them. Why? Because Christ has the keys to death. He unlocks the the prison door, and we too have eternal life. So then he says this. He really reiterates the commission. Verse 19. He says, Write the thing which you have seen, meaning in the vision, and the things that are, the things that are happening right now to the churches, what are happening in the Roman Empire right now. And which will take place after this, those things that are going to happen in the near future. He says, write down these things. And then, of course, what we read already in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which are in my hand and the seven golden lamp stamp stamps. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lamp stamp stands which you saw are the seven churches. And so now we've embarked on the beginning of the first vision. And he has his first vision, and now what he is to do is he's to write it down, and he's to deliver this vision to the churches. And we're going to see the message that he sent to the churches next week, and we're going to see how they apply to us as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation and what it means. Help us to realize that uh, this is a very important book. This is what sustained the early church when they faced persecution. When hell literally broke loose and there were no restraints and Christians were being slaughtered simply because they said Jesus is Lord and refused to bow the knee to Caesar. Help us, Lord, to learn the lessons that these churches learned. Help us to be obedient to this message that is contained in this book. May we, too, reflect faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.